Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We've been in this series called Pigs Fly. Pigs Fly has been all about how God takes the ridiculous and turns it into reality. And in this whole series, we've talked about the four phases of a dream, not that God has to follow any formula, but if you follow the Bible and you look at Bible characters, what you'll notice is there tend to be these four phases to the dreams that God gives us. We've chosen David for our purposes. And the reality is, is that not even, it's not just about David. We see those same phases uh, acted out even in our own dreams. We talked about phase one is becoming aware of the dream, the passions, the dream, the idea that God puts inside of us. Phase two was about encountering opposition, that on the way to fulfilling the dream that God gives us, we're going to encounter opposition. For David, that was a nine foot, nine inch giant named Goliath. Then phase three is about enduring delays. It was what we looked at last weekend. It's not David at its finest. Uh, And then today we're going to talk about phase four, which is learning to surrender. I think of all the phases that we've looked at, this, this fourth phase, this learning to surrender, is probably the one that we struggle with the most. You know, David's life, uh, is one that I I really love. I think I I love David's story because his story so much parallels our story. He struggles with things. To use a word that we use a lot at Cross Lane, he's real. Um, When David was a young boy, he was a shepherd, he was out in the field, this prophet named Samuel came and was going to anoint the next king of Israel. Uh, He looked at all of David's older brothers and when he saw David, he said, this is the one that God wants to be the next king. This was awkward because... Israel already had a king. His name was Saul, and he had a son named Jonathan. And the assumption was probably that Jonathan would become the next king of Israel. He would take over for his father. Beyond that, it just really didn't add up that David would be the next king. He was the youngest in his family. He was the least experienced. He was the least in rank. And Samuel comes, and he anoints David the king, and then he leaves. And I I wonder if If everybody didn't just go about business as usual, and is it possible that David even, this idea of becoming the king over the years just kind of slipped away from his mind? Time goes on, and and, and, uh, eventually David's dad, Jesse, asked David to go check on his brothers who are in the Israelite army. They are faced off with the Philistines up on a hillside. And David is not a soldier, but he's been sent there to check on his brothers and to send back word bring back word to Jesse that his brother's okay. Well, while while he's there, he hears this giant named Goliath taunting the armies of the living God. So he decides that he's going to do something about it. He decides he's going to fight Goliath, and he does, and he wins. And overnight, he goes from being a shepherd boy that no one's ever heard of to an overnight sensation and a national hero. King Saul even commends David and offers David the, the hand of his daughter, and marriage. And now David starts to think to himself, well, maybe there is a way for me to see an end to this dream. Maybe I can see this thing to completion. Maybe Samuel was right when he anointed me king all those years ago. I mean, up to this point, again, I don't know how much David really thought about the idea of being king, but as all this unfolded, now maybe it was a possibility. Now maybe it just might happen. But then things start to change. David starts to notice a difference in the demeanor of Saul. He, he, he picks up on a distance from him. And then one day, uh, Saul picks up a sword and throws it, uh, picks up a spear and throws it at David. 
and uh, any suspicions that David might have had uh, that Saul was not happy with him were then confirmed. And Saul becomes incredibly, uh, insanely jealous of David, and, and in minutes, this dream that David had of becoming the next king began to slip through his fingers, and in fear, he takes off and he runs for the border. And I think David feels like a lot of us do when we feel like our dreams are slipping through our fingers. He doesn't feel like God is for him anymore. He doesn't feel like uh, his dream is going to happen anymore. So he does what I think a lot of people do. He turns his back on God and he runs. And in the pursuit of this God-given dream, he abandons his God-given values. But David comes to see that through his actions, he makes a, a bad situation even worse. And at the end of last week's story, we saw where David came to a conclusion, a very important conclusion, that my way isn't working. And I think that that's something that we all have to come to sometimes, that our way and our uh, agenda for our dream is not always God's agenda. And, and we all have hopes and we all have wishes and we all have dreams and things that we want to accomplish for God. And I think they kind of start to fill out a picture of our future and of our life. But we also have this kind of nagging fear that maybe these things at times are disappearing. I grew up in uh, Livonia, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, uh, with three brothers, all within three years of each other. So sports just kind of became what we chased after. And when I was about a fifth grader, I told my grandpa, I'm gonna play professional football. And I think every one of my friends had that same dream, had that same thought. We all wanted to be like Barry Sanders or Dion or somebody like that. But um, I, I told my grandpa, I was like, I'm gonna play pro football. My high school career was pretty unbelievable. Looking back on it, I started both ways, offense and defense on varsity as a freshman. And by the time I was a sophomore, I mean, I rushed for 2,000 yards, 28 touchdowns. And by the time I was a senior, I broke every single Michigan high school rushing record there was. When big time schools, universities were coming to want me to get to go to their school and play for them, you know, then you just start thinking about college and, and it just seemed like everything was going so well. Penn State is an unreal place to play football. 110,000 people, just absolutely football stupid. I remember the first time that I ran out that tunnel. And you just kind of get caught up. And then I started to just work as hard, as hard as I could, lifting weights, running. I'm a, but I put it on myself. I, I gotta work hard. I gotta be better. I gotta get stronger. I gotta get smarter. All these things, and I, and I knew if I wanted to make my dream happen, I had to do it. Once uh, my college career was over, and starting to think, okay, all right, let, now we're on to the next step. College was fun, but now, you know, it's time to get paid. It's time to go to the big league, you know. I was drafted by Carolina in the fifth round, and um, I was only there for one year. And then uh, after that first season, which I played well, uh, came to cut time, and uh, sure enough, I got cut. If I'm honest, that was the first time in my life, first time in my life, when I realized that there was nothing that I could do to get me on an NFL football team. I couldn't work harder, I couldn't lift more weights, I couldn't run any faster. All I could do was sit 
and actually wait on God. I finally got picked up right before Thanksgiving by Jacksonville Jaguars. There was only five weeks of the season left, but sure enough, September came around, I got cut. A week goes by, I got called by Chicago. And come around that next year, there's no way I'm gonna be cut now. I mean, I had to have the best year. Well, September comes around again, and I get that phone call. You know, and, I, and they're like, you know, Tim, we're sorry, we're, we're gonna let you go. And I'm just, you know, I'm, <laughs> I get uh, a call from the Titans, and they had picked me up off of the waiver wire, and uh, I was a Titan. And I, ha I had a great year in my, my first year in Tennessee. I was actually a Pro Bowl alternate. So football's going great. But that next year comes around, and now ha I had been cut three years in a row. And so you can imagine that my confidence as far as making the team is not really high. I mean, my odds are not good. You know, cut time's coming, and the phone doesn't ring. You know, and I'm just, I'm just very thankful, very humbled by that. And the cool thing was that that, that next week after the cuts were made, uh, the team voted on captains, and I was voted as a special teams captain. <laughs> Just the, the pressure was unreal. The pressure to be great, the pressure to make it, the pressure that somebody is coming for my job every single day. To keep my dream on track, I felt like I had to perform every day. Whether it was that NFL combine, or whether it was practice, or whether it was a game, every single play it was on me to keep my dream alive and to keep my dream going. And, but when I finally made the team that second year in Tennessee, I kind of had that feeling of, all right, this is starting to feel like my dream. You know, I feel like this is what I wanted all along and feeling like a place I can call home and feeling like guys that I can relate to and, and a community that will love me. And, um, I was feeling good. Going into my fourth season with Tennessee, I had just signed a new contract, a three-year deal. The guy came up to me and he said, hey, you know, Coach Munchak wants to see you in his office. And your heart just kind of sinks and you, you know, you know what's happening. So you, you make that walk, that feeling of, all right, you know, how do I walk out of this building with respect and with my, health, my head held high? And I was like, well, let's see where I end up. Somebody will pick me up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 29, I'm playing great football. I actually started uh, a bunch of games to end the season before, and I started all the preseason games playing good ball. And the phone didn't ring. When I got cut this last time, I continued to work out. I continued to stay ready. You know, I knew that phone call would come. Again, that, that uh, foolish belief of, of I can control things. And as the season went on, what I realized that God was doing through a number of, of personal things in my life and through the game of football was that he was really loosening my grip on the game. I was wrestling with that with God. You know, I'm like, God, what a, I, know, I know I got plenty of football left in me. This is what you want for me. And I was telling him rather than letting him tell me and it was freeing and painful at the same time. It was, you know, it was a great loss. It is a great loss for me. And I have decided to retire, um, to give up the game. I'm, I'm 30 years old, but to give up the game that I started playing when I was 12, it was very tough. It's interesting how we all respond differently when we realize that a dream is slipping away from us. 
Last week we watched David respond not in a very good way when he realized his dream was getting away from him. We saw how he tried to manipulate and control things that were never intended to be manipulated and controlled. Today we're going to see David respond very differently when he feels like something that, that he'd hoped for or that God maybe had birthed in him as a dream is getting away from him. In Second Samuel chapter 15, David now has a son named Absalom, and David and Absalom are estranged from one another. Some weird things have happened, and they have not spoken in years. And, and over the years, Absalom has gained great popularity uh, with the people, and he decides that he is going to rule David's kingdom. So in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, it says, A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. This had to be a, a painful moment for David to realize that uh, up until now he's held out this dream that uh, things were going to get better. He's ignored all the signs. You know, Absalom hasn't really wanted to talk to him. Up to now he's kind of held out hope that things could be reconciled between he and Absalom. But now, David, whatever your dreams were of a reconciliation, it's pretty clear. It's not going to happen. Your own son has declared war on you and the people are with him. Do you remember a, a time when there was something that you, you dreamed or hoped for and, and it was no longer a reality? This is where David finds himself with the word that he never wanted to hear. Your son is going to go to war against you and he's going to assume your kingdom and he's going to try to take control of what has up until now been yours. Do you know what David does? Do you know how David responds to this news? He peacefully leaves. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, verse 25, it says, Then the king, who is David, said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, that I am ready, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. He's saying, just because my will won't be done doesn't mean that God's will won't be done. David's saying, I, I'm not going to try to control and manipulate what I cannot control and manipulate any longer. This isn't a picture that I would paint, but this is a picture, obviously, that God is painting for me. And I will not abandon God, even though I will abandon my dream. And, and even though things don't look good for me right now, I think David would say, uh, my God has made pigs fly before, and I believe that my God can make pigs fly again. I think David has learned in his life that he can't control the outcomes of life. I think probably that's one of the biggest illusions that we have in our life, is that we can control the outcomes. The illusion of control can be a very dangerous thing because there can become this temptation to just try to control everything because we want to win. We want to be right. Do you struggle with that in your marriage? Do you struggle with that at work? Do you struggle with that in your parenting? See, somewhere along the way, a lot of us bought into this idea that we can actually control the outcomes in our life. But that simply is not true. It's an illusion. Here's what happens in David's life. We get to chapter 16 and Absalom and his men come in and they take over the kingdom. They rule over all of Jerusalem. He takes over the city. He takes over the throne. He takes everything that was his father's. But that's not enough for Absalom. 
Absalom decides, uh, acting on some really bad advice from some of his advisors, that he's going to go after David and he's going to try to kill his own father, even though David has left the kingdom peacefully. So Absalom gathers his army together and they go out to find David and to meet him in battle. Well, David is a great warrior and he's going to defend himself against Absalom's army. But he gives specific instructions to his officers that uh, whatever you do, please don't kill Absalom. He, he holds out for this dream of reconciliation with his son. Uh, but David uh, loses Absalom in battle. Absalom is killed in battle. And David had to get to the point where he could say, not my dream, not my picture of what my life should be, but God, your dream and your will. I think David would have said, I have dreams, I have passions, I have goals, but at the end of the day, ultimately, God, let your will be done. You know, we're leaving the parking lot, and we all, we're big seatbelt believers, and I assumed everybody was snapped in, um, and I remember looking up at the light thinking, hmm, we're going through a red light, and before I could say, Bruce, we were just hit and it was just it was it was surreal it was like slow motion spinning Bruce found him in the mud and of course you know a father's not gonna let his son lay face down in the mud so Bruce rolled him back to the sidewalk and he flew about 25 feet and hit his head on the curb so we knew we knew that it was serious I remember pleading to God. Save my son. I'll never ask for anything else. Save my son. Just, you know, it was like every every ounce of what I had in me was pleading. Not asking, pleading, please. Let my let my son have another chance. I think my very first memory period was I was in a hospital bed and there was a net around me so I couldn't get out I felt trapped so I don't really ever remember understanding what had happened I guess my eyes kind of got open that I I was gonna have a long road ahead of me. I just knew I was on top of the world before the accident, or so it felt. You know, I wasn't used to this feeling of being confined and not being able to do anything. I could do everything. So that is when I developed my anger for the situation that I was in. I was mad. I was mad at God. I'm not going to lie. I didn't see a future in myself. Here I was once playing all these sports, very active, could do anything. And now here I was, 
knocked down to close proximity to death. I was mad and I was mad at God. And that kind of, I guess, got me in a little trouble. Uh, I got, I was in a few more fights in my early years of high school. I didn't, I didn't see the reason in this. I didn't understand. Once I got over that, I had a, I had a sense in my, in myself that I was invincible. Nothing could stop me. As time passed, I began to kind of briefly see a little reason in what had happened. It wasn't until I got to MTSU that I could see God's future for my life. I walked into my first class. It was ag business. And right then, I knew this is where I need to be. I am graduating this May and it's been five years, straight through, no breaks. I'm, I'm so excited about what all the future holds for me. I have many dreams in my life right now. I would like to write a book. It'll, it'll be an inspirational, motivational book but my story will be the base of it. In my book, I would like to talk about how God has led me through this experience and how he has changed me. I really hope that my story, my attitude, the way I look at things, will motivate other people and inspire them to see that anything's possible. Once I got that, life was great. Yes, I have what most people would call a disability. I call it determination. Life is better now than before the wreck. So, whatever happens, if I get set back to nothing, I fully trust that God will bring me back to where I need to be. And it will be better than this life right now that I'm living. Anything can come true. Just start out with a dream. See, we all have a picture of the way we expect our life to turn out. The real question is, can you surrender that picture? It's hard to live with the uncertainty. It's hard to live with the what ifs. 
It's hard to live not knowing exactly how the picture is going to turn out. Question. What is the heavy burden you carry? What is the anxiety that you feel deep down? Where are you afraid that God just isn't going to do what you think he should do? And the reality is it's probably different for each one of us in the room this morning. But one way or another, it's just a part of a picture of our lives that we we cling to for dear life, thinking to ourselves that the only way I'm going to be happy and whole, the only way I'm ever going to know peace and contentment in my life is if the picture of my life turns out the way I expect it to. And so we have these dreams. But what do you do when the dream doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out? What do you do with your broken and shattered dreams? What do you do with your unmet expectations? And isn't it difficult when everybody else's dreams seem to be coming true and yours are not? The emotions that come along with unmet expectation are, are, are pretty strong. These are the things that drive us to drink too much. These are the things that drive us to say things we shouldn't say. These are the things that drive us to take control in times when we really shouldn't try to take control. These are the emotions that will drive us to do things that we swore we would never do and that can wreck our life. And if you're really honest, you would admit that some of your greatest regrets in life come from decisions that you made, come from the path you chose, comes from the people that you decided to hang out with and the words that you said in a season in your life when your dreams were not coming true the way you thought they should. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, what's your dream? Like, what are you dreaming about now? It's hard for me to talk about dreams. I said, I, I lived my dream already. You know, I, I just got done. I just got done with my dream. Because when you think of someone that has a dream, you think of a goal that, or aspiration in life that is kind of far-fetched, unattainable. It takes surrender. Try and do it yourself. Try and make it on your shoulders. Well, I, I don't like that anything's possible. It's when I truly opened up my arms and just said, all right, God, only you, only you can do this. Only you can make me, can fulfill my dream, only you. That's when it really happened. It's good to have dreams. It's healthy to have goals. It's good to have a picture of the way you want your life to turn out. But ultimately, you, you have to be willing to surrender that picture. God wants you to trust him with the details of that picture, of your future. That stuff that you cling to so tightly. All this kind of trust is, is going to feel risky because there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of uncertainties and twists and turns that come along with the paths that we're going to be called to take. And we don't always see how things are going to turn out. But you're going to be shocked at what God can do with and through a person who is willing to surrender that picture. This is a God who can turn the ridiculous into reality. So empty your hands, trust and believe that your God can make pigs fly.